0: This is a WTOP original podcast
1: from podcast one
2: previously on colors being a black journalist getting racist hate mail unfortunately sometimes is a part of the job but a recent letter triggered an extraordinary event.
3: Once I read what was written to J.J., it
2: did make me angry. That's Joel Oxley, Senior Vice President and General Manager of WTOP, which is where I work. And about that extraordinary event, Oxley responded with an open letter.
3: My goal is to expose this kind of racial intolerance in the hopes of putting more and more of it behind us for good. The racist letter.
2: Responses are still coming in.
1: Coming up in this episode of Colors.
2: So, a year after George Floyd's death, a year after all the complaints about police, the protest, and complaints about us in the media, what's changing in the newsrooms,
3: in the TV and radio stations around the country? I know that uh, the companies that own and operate. Uh, Newsrooms, local newsrooms in the broadcast uh, area around the country are still uh, striving every day to try to improve the numbers. Dan Shelley
2: is executive director of the Radio Television Digital News Association. He will join me as guest host and our guest is Robert Papper, longtime RTDNA researcher and adjunct professor at Syracuse University. And he's got some Good news and bad news.
4: In the case of television, it's been generally getting better and better every year. That's less true in radio.
1: That's coming up in this episode of
2: Colors. Simmering racial tensions.
4: Segregation now and tomorrow
2: and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality. Exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington,
1: D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
0: Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys.
3: i'm black i'm dan shelley and i'm white
2: and this is colors we have a a a fantastic gentleman joining us as our guest host today his name is dan shelley dan is the executive director and chief operating officer of the radio and television digital news association and foundation previously he worked at iheartmedia before that he was a vice president at interactive one worked at CBS TV and uh, I guess congratulations are in order considering that you used to work for the Milwaukee Bucks.
3: Well, kind of, sort (laughs) of we ran when I was in Milwaukee, uh, we ran uh, the Milwaukee Bucks radio network uh, along with the Brewers and the Green Bay Packers. uh, And I was very excited to see uh, the Bucks win their first title in 50 years. Well, um,
2: You have a friend that's joining us today, and he's a pretty impressive friend, right?
3: Uh, I like to think so, Uh, (laughs) and uh, all of us at RTDNA like to think so. Uh, Bob Papper has been RTDNA's researcher for, I want to say, about 30 years. He's an adjunct professor of broadcast and digital journalism, Uh, at one of the most prestigious uh, journalism schools in the country, the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. He's also worked extensively in radio and TV news. Uh, And one of the most important pieces of research that Bob compiles for us and the Newhouse School each year is our local news diversity study. It's a comprehensive look at how local TV and radio newsrooms around the country are faring when it comes to having staffs that are comprised of people who look like and come from the same ethnicities as the news consumers they serve in their communities. Bob, welcome. Uh, and uh, first question, generally speaking, how is the local news industry doing now in terms of representation of people of color among their management and reporting staffs?
4: Well, in the case of that, and thank you for, for inviting me to participate in this, um, in the case of television, it's been generally getting better and better every year. Um, that's less true in radio, where it, it uh, has kind of stalled out overall.
3: Well, when you look at the various segments of the U.S. population, I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, uh, says the U.S. workforce is 17 percent Hispanic, 13 percent African-American, Asian American, 1% Native American. Uh, In local TV, um, while 17% of the general population is Hispanic, 12.2% in local TV are Hispanic uh, or Latino, uh, depending on which they prefer to be uh, referred to. Uh, And in terms of African Americans, Blacks, uh, 12.3% of the population uh, is black and thirteen uh, percent of uh, radio news employee. I'm sorry, television news employees are black. So that seems to be pretty much on par.
4: Um, it's it's not bad, and it has generally been getting better. It's the, the picture is even more complicated. Uh, most jobs in in TV, rightly or wrongly, require a college degree. And so if we look at the college degreed workforce, uh, then the percentages um, tend to, to look a little bit better. But it's it's, um, you know, against the general population, there's still quite a ways to go.
2: Bob, you know, as a guy who's been on radio all my life, not just exclusively, but certainly for the dominant portion of my career, I'm very interested in that comment you made about um television uh, doing much better than than radio in terms of minorities uh yeah. people of color being employed. Why is that?
4: Well, um why is that is a uh, a DC Court of Appeals ruling in 1998. Um uh that's the year that the uh the Court of Appeals said that the FCC's EEO guidelines, equal opportunity, equal employment opportunity guidelines were invalid. Um, You know, the fact is that until 1998, um, the the broadcast industry had a form of a quota system. Um, The FCC said that stations had to be at 50% parity of uh, the workforce in their local community and so the broadcast industry was one of the first in the country um, to have uh, you know some some strikingly comparatively high percentage of minorities in the industry and that was going along pretty well and those rules went into effect in the late 60s early 70s you can't put a year on it because, in fact, they rolled in over time, and there were several different rulings. In 1998, the, uh, the Circuit Court of Appeals threw that out. And the big question then was what was going to happen. And um, what happened was something that I think was predictable, which was that in television, where you can see a lot of the employees... Of a newsroom, the the minority percentages held pretty steady, um, and in fact, over time have actually increased. Um, you know, the and even the behind the scenes has increased over time. The people that you cannot see, the majority of the people that in TV news that you cannot see, uh, that wasn't the case in radio. Uh, in, in radio, and you're talking about a much smaller group of people in terms of radio news versus TV news. Um, you know, in, in radio, where your typical radio newsroom has one person in it, um, when you need to fill a vacancy, that becomes a problem. And all of a sudden, you can just fill it by the first qualified person that comes along. And Mm. so uh, inevitably, I thought and and I wrote about this, you know, in 1998, um, that radio was going to slip. And they did. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) the person isn't visible Um, to a large extent. You can't tell um, the ethnicity of someone by listening to them. Um, And so so, you know, radio has. Radio has tended to to bounce up and down, but is certainly way behind television.
2: So what this sounds like to me, Bob, is that it has less to do with who's available, but it has more to do with just the choice uh, of not hiring people of color because they don't have to, because they don't have to worry about it. Is that me getting this wrong?
4: Yeah, I I think that there is a fair amount of indifference to the issue because you don't have to pay attention to it.
2: Hmm. That's problematic. You know, it,
4: be, it becomes, a, in essence, an option. Now there are plenty of stations where it matters, uh, and that's especially true in non-commercial radio. But that's what I want to ask you. Much much higher
2: percentage. That's what I want of, to ask you. Of, of that's what I want to ask you very quickly. Uh, is this does this have more to do with the market that they're in and the size of the station um, in terms of the number of people of color there as opposed to um, uh, just the preference not to hire people of color alone?
4: I don't think it's a, a matter of a preference not to hire nearly as much as an indifference. And and that's a critical distinction. Hmm. Um, now uh, if, if you're not getting hired, maybe that distinction. Blurs, well, well, what but, is that? Does, um, what is,
2: what is the, what is it then the difference or distinction?
4: Well, I think that, you know, what we see in radio is that in the largest markets in large markets and in major markets, there's a much higher percentage of minorities, uh, because that's, that tends to be where there are a lot more of, uh, of the minorities. And and in smaller markets, small markets and and medium sized markets, the percentages tend to be much lower, um, you know, because more and more in those markets, you've just got one person um, in the newsroom. And that is I mean, that's the entire news department.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Dan, I've dominated this over to you.
3: Well, I, I wanted to touch briefly on something you said a moment ago, Bob, and that is that uh, public radio stations tend to fare better in terms of uh, a diverse representation among their staffs. Uh, why do you think that is?
4: Well, and, and it, the, the percentage of minorities at non-commercial stations is almost three times as high as at commercial stations. So we're not talking about a small difference. We're talking about a huge one. Now, a lot of those non-commercial stations are located uh, at universities, um, and universities generally tend to be very, very conscious uh, about you know a diverse student population, a diverse staff population, um, even occasionally a diverse uh, faculty population, um, and so. You know, that's, uh, you know, that that's their numbers are 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 dramatically different. If it weren't for non-commercial radio, radio would be strikingly white.
3: That's that's fascinating, but in some respects, not surprising. Um, And a lot of it has to do with the economics of uh, the radio industry. With uh, podcasting and uh, with uh, on-demand platforms, other on-demand platforms, uh, the 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 good old-fashioned local radio newsroom uh, in many communities across the country is uh, virtually a thing of the past.
4: Yeah, yeah, and COVID didn't help. Um, I mean that 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 took out. I don't I don't have the percentage in front of me, but it, something like six to eight percent of radio newsrooms went out of the news business um, because mm. of COVID, because of the uh, the economic pressures uh, that took place uh, during COVID. I mean, radio is 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 a very different business than television. There's a lot of money in television. There is not nearly as much money in radio. Um And and, you know, your your margins tend to be higher, tend to be higher. If you're not an all news or a news talk uh, radio station, um, then then you're generally supporting news rather than making money on news.
2: You know, there's. Um,
3: Sorry, go uh, ahead, Dan. And and that dates back to uh, the 1980s in the Reagan administration. Uh, And the Congress at the time, which uh, made the decision to deregulate uh, much of the broadcast industry, Uh, it used to be that uh, radio and TV stations, particularly radio stations, uh, were mandated by the government to devote uh, X percentage of their on-air time to news and public affairs programs. When those regulations went away, uh, many radio stations began transitioning away from Uh, having large news departments to having, in many cases, just one or two people, or in a lot of cases, no people at all. Uh, And that was a transformative moment for the industry. Uh, But as it relates to to television news uh, across the country uh, on a local basis, uh, I see uh, a lot of the major companies, all of the major companies that uh, staff uh, local newsrooms uh, in communities across the country, really making substantial efforts to try to improve their diversity profile, particularly in on-air and in management positions. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit, Bob, about uh, newsroom management, because as important as anchors and reporters are, uh, certainly they're critical to this entire equation. Uh, Managers uh, set the direction, set the vision, and make sure that it's carried out. Uh, what what are we seeing in terms of trends uh, of uh, uh, people of color in management roles, in TV in particular?
4: Um, yeah, th- I mean, that's a very good point, Dan.
3: Uh, and, and in
4: television, generally, the workforce has gotten increasingly diverse. Um, and that includes at the top, which is the news director. We don't, uh, in the survey, we don't break down ethnicity by um, you know, by specific uh, work title, except for the news director. I mean, that we have data for. And and that's obviously the key person. That's the, de- the person who makes the decisions. And it's also, I mean, this is the ultimate decider in terms of what kind of news gets covered and the approach that's taken. And it's also the key person who decides about hiring and and the diversity of the workforce. And that has steadily that the percentage of minority uh, news directors in TV has pretty uh, consistently gone up. And we're now over 20 percent um, minority TV news directors. And and it's, you know, I don't think we can sit back and say, aha, we we've you know, we've achieved whatever goal we need to, but that's a substantial increase, and it's been a pretty steady one over the years.
2: So let me ask uh, this question, Bob: uh, Since yeah. last year, since the George Floyd killing and all of the protests that have taken place, and the consciousness and awareness, uh, the rise in that in the country, how has that impacted um, the change or the, as you mentioned, this this incremental increase? Was it more substantial? this time around when it comes to management, or was it... That's uh... that's
4: asking a cause and effect that that we don't really know. The survey is conducted in the fourth quarter of every year, so Mm. we're getting ready to go out in the field and start collecting the data. So it's, you know, since it's the fourth quarter of the year, looking at, at the latest numbers doesn't really tell us much that we can correlate with uh, with George Floyd and 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 all of those other activities, it'll be interesting to see if the new numbers have changed markedly mm-hmm. um, from okay. the current ones.
2: So, Bob, uh, let me throw this question then over to Dan. Dan, you have um, been on the pulse of this for since since it, since it all began. We've been communicating about this since uh, Memorial Day of last year. So, what's your anecdotal sense? Uh, of the changes in terms of minority numbers in management and in staffing?
3: Well, I can tell you unequivocally, and this is anecdotal, Bob's the empirical guy, I'm the anecdotal guy, Uh, but I'm in regular contact with the very top executives at all of the major companies that uh, staff radio and television newsrooms across the country. Uh, And there was a sea change after uh, Memorial Day of uh, 2020. Uh, a sea change in terms of the attitude, the approach, the recognition, uh, almost, you could say, the epiphany uh, among these top executives at these companies that run a vast majority of local journalism uh, operations uh, in communities all across the country. That while they had made strides uh, in throughout uh, the previous years in, in diversifying their uh, predominantly TV local TV newsroom staffs, uh, they needed to make a, a, an even bigger effort uh, to do so in terms of both on-air positions and uh, off-air positions uh, in a supervisory capacity, such as uh, newscast producers, executive producers, uh, as Bob mentioned, news directors, uh, and also general managers. And a lot of these companies, most of these companies, Uh, have made significant progress from what I'm hearing with my ear to the ground. Now, Bob's numbers next year uh, will determine whether uh, my sense is, is actually true.
2: So what what do you get from these this knowledge, or I don't know if it's all conversations. You said it's all anecdotal and I, I get that that, uh, that you, we have to wait and see what the numbers are. But what do you get is the reason why these changes have taken place? Why these executives have have done this? Was it concern about um, optics or was it um, because of it's
3: time to do the right thing? No, it's much more than optics much more than optics. It's a genuine recognition uh, on the part of these top executives who set the culture for their entire companies that uh, in this era of of racial reawakening, if you will, they needed to significantly ramp up their efforts to ensure that not just the on-air faces, but uh, the people who manage the on-air faces truly reflected the composition of the communities they serve. It was, it, it was a massive, uh, massive change for the positive. They were already working on these kinds of issues before, but it really brought them to the forefront.
4: JJ, if I can interject something in this. Yes. Uh, the optics play a role in terms of the reporters and the anchors because your audience sees those people but they don't see the people behind the scenes. And that's actually the majority of of the people in in a television newsroom. And now the reason the numbers in TV held up uh, as opposed to radio is is that if if you don't have a, a diverse group of people in television, your audience can see that. And so what companies understood is that It's good business to have a diverse staff. Yeah. Um, You know, and again, especially on air. What has taken place since that time is an understanding, I think, more and more on the part of stations, that they need a diverse staff up and down the whole spectrum of all of those jobs, because otherwise they're going to miss news in part of their community.
2: Yeah. You know, um, we're running uh, uh, up against our clock here. And uh, Dan, I'm going to throw it over to you in a moment for uh, some final question, uh, final question or whatever to to Bob. And Bob, if you have anything you want to ask me or say um, after that. But I'm going to throw this out there fairly early on in this process. Uh, the the quote woke process, um, RTDNA had a um, it was a virtual call where i participated with some other people of color on a call discussing leadership by by minorities in newsrooms and there was a comment from an individual who mentioned that someone that they worked with who happened to be a person of color had raised concerns about race in the newsroom race racism in that particular newsroom And um, that wasn't received very well. That person essentially later was called in front of the boss to give an account of why they made that accusation. And there have been other situations where things like this have come up. And one of the things that I've been concerned about from the beginning is uh, as these changes take place, um, are they taking place reluctantly? And, um, there, there, there are people who I know most likely, uh, but some I'm almost certain are just kind of waiting, biting their time until this settles mm-hmm. down. And then they go back to doing what they're doing, what they were doing before. Um, what would you say to folks who are concerned about this?
3: Well, I will say that no company is perfect despite its best efforts to, to be, Uh, uh, as close to perfect as possible. So you will have those situations such as the one you described. uh, And I listened into that call and I'm familiar with uh, that person's uh, uh, plight. Uh, But I will say this, uh, there is a heightened awareness at all levels of every company uh, that produces local newscasts uh, across the country uh, that this is an issue that's not going away. This time. Uh, There have been uh, other uh, ebbs, if you will, uh, or or flows, I should say, uh, uh, periods of time where this has become a priority, and then ebbs when things have have settled down a bit. I don't think you'll see any ebbs this time. I think uh, this new sense of uh, a need for better community representation in local TV news in particular. Uh, I think it's here to stay. Uh, I think while there will always be some one-offs, such as you described, by and large, the industry in general, and I realize I'm making a big generalization here, uh, is is really making deep-seated, intense, long-term efforts to try to improve the situation. Not just in terms of the numbers, but the working conditions for the people of color they're able to attract and hire and uh, put on the air and put in off-air supervisory and other positions.
2: That's great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear that, Dan. Coming from you, it's something uh, that I believe I can trust, uh, and um, it is really encouraging.
3: Well, as Bob said, it's good business, and whenever you're talking about something that's good business, uh, it's going to stay around for a while.
2: All right, then, Um, you know, Bob, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, One of the things about numbers is that there's a lot of detail in them. And people (laughs) like myself who are often so breathlessly working in the journalism business don't take time to break down the numbers and what's behind them. So it's it's a terrific pleasure to have you here talking with us and telling us what these numbers are and what they mean. And we're looking forward to the, the fourth quarter numbers from this year. And Dan, well, what can I say? it doesn't get much better than this having the two of you here talking about the, the trends in radio
3: and television. Well, thank you so much, JJ. It's very kind of you to uh, include us in this critical conversation uh, because uh, I I think uh, that as trust in journalism uh, is facing new challenges because of uh, the current political and ideological uh, chasm that exists in the country, uh, I think any conversation uh, about ways to build trust, particularly as it relates uh, to race and ethnicity. I think that's critical. so I appreciate the opportunity. Bob, any final thoughts?
4: It's been my pleasure to talk I, I love talking about numbers um, and and you know dealing with this kind of thing and I think there are, there are no more important subjects. Then and I feel calls on this all the time and and along with questions of, you know, what can we do? And and I so I'm I'm delighted to be part of a conversation that addresses that issue and, and hopefully advances the cause.
2: Thank you again, Bob. I'll be back with Dan Shelley and some final thoughts right after this. You're
1: listening to colors.
0: My name is Ken Duffy. I am white, first generation Irish American born in New York, anchor reporter at WTOP. I am a child of an immigrant. My father came over from Ireland. We didn't grow up with a whole lot, but we were white. We had advantages over other people based on our skin color. And that's what I try to remind myself every day when I look at my life as a journalist that I need to tell stories that need to be told. I need to lift up voices that have been silenced for so many years and to continue doing that even while the protesting has subsided somewhat in the wake of the death of George Floyd, that we need to continue to be brave enough to go out there and to tell the stories that need to be told and to not worry about who's going to pick one side or the other on it but to do your job to be a public servant again and to contribute something to society that actually matters, to have the courage to go out there and to continue to do it because it is so important to do still in this country, so many issues out there that we need to tell for the betterment of society.
1: This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
2: Well Dan, as I said to you, getting into these numbers is particularly important to me because of spending most of my career in radio and while what Bob said was encouraging, I'm still not very I'm still not very optimistic about the future of radio even though it's improved you know, generally speaking from a business point of view, but from a radio point of view, minorities in radio, I think that's one of the things that's most more important than ever now because of the way in which people consume their news and where they are. Um, And I'm just not so sure about the future of it, but overall the numbers were good though.
3: Um, I agree uh, with uh, the fact that the overall numbers are good. They could always be better. Uh, And I know that uh, the companies that own and operate Uh, Newsrooms, local newsrooms in the broadcast uh, area around the country are still uh, striving every day to try to improve the numbers, Uh, not because uh, it's just good business, although it is, but because uh, they they genuinely want to serve their communities. And one of the most important ways you serve your community through your newscasts is by representing the uh, various factions within that community. So it's, it's, it's a critical task. Uh, it's one that is, remains top of mind. Uh, a lot of companies that run local newsrooms uh, for the first time in their histories now have chief diversity officers uh, at the executive level uh, who are overseeing these efforts. Uh, things are really getting better, but much more work needs to be done.
2: What work is the most important work, do you think, at this point?
3: Well, the most important work is establishing trust. And establishing trust not just between uh, anchor, reporter, and the audience, but, but establishing trust between the executives and the management structure of these uh, broadcast journalism companies and the employees. Uh, and one way to do that, a critical way to do that, is uh, again to make sure that the staffs are diverse, uh, to make sure that even in, in smaller cities or towns, uh, where there may not be as many uh, people of color as you would find in, in larger metropolitan areas, uh, the, the the effort is, uh, is critical uh, to establish that trust by making sure you have representative voices helping to deliver the news of the day.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right about the trust piece. Thanks, Dan, for taking time to do this.
3: Thanks, JJ, I really appreciate it.
2: I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black.
3: I'm Dan Shelley, and I'm white. And this is Colors.
1: Coming up in our next episode of Colors. I'm a black woman living in the DMV,
2: and nine years ago I got remarried to a white man from central Pennsylvania. Her name is Robin, and what she says next is stunning. My husband loves me, for sure, but I realize that he is a racist. We've had a few controversial podcasts, but this one is unrivaled. I knew he was conservative when we began dating. I am a Democrat. We debated a lot of the issues from time to time. However, in 2016, when he began favoring Donald Trump, things began to become very uncomfortable. So just how uncomfortable did things get? To put it bluntly, there were four years of hell in our home. On this podcast, we get a whole new look at racism.
1: That's coming up in our
2: next episode of Colors. Before we do our thank yous and wrap up our business, there's something else I need to do. Joel Oxley, the senior vice president and general manager of WTOP, which is where I work, was on the last show and he was talking about the open letter that he wrote to the individual who wrote to me telling me how worthless I and other people african-americans are and how worthless the black lives matter movement is and a lot of unsavory and frankly very ugly things were said in that letter i got another letter this one came from arlington virginia and it says dear mr green i want to tell you that i'm sorry if opening mail from strangers causes you some dread i also want to let you know how unfair it is when a good human being such as yourself, commits to advancing America's dialogue on race in the constructive way that you do with colors during your free time. If the person who called you a racist in his letter felt as though he still had any power, he would not have done that. He would not have confronted you anonymously. So I, too, agree that your podcast is achieving great things and expect you to be speaking at a more national level soon. Again, I'm sorry for the pain he caused you, someone who's trying to do good things for all of America. Sincerely, a white female, 53 years old. Thank you for colors. Well, let me just say to the person who wrote this, thank you sincerely. This means a lot, not just to me, but I hope I speak for others out there. That's the most important thing. There are others out there who've experienced this and don't have a platform. So thank you for your support. And thanks to the hundreds of other people who've written in support of those fighting against that kind of ugly behavior. And also today, thank you, Ron Fresno, Ken Brubaker, Kevin Igo, Peter Howe, Ellie Rowe, Robin Beckwith, Ray Magno, Christy Carson, Christy Rogers, Genevieve Kurtz. And also thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Antonino Favro, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley. Tom O'Connor, Bess Marie Moses, Sue Ryszkowski, and thank you for the music, Jesse Gallagher. Thank you, Cosmic. Thank you, Offshane. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. And as always, keep talking to each other. And just as importantly, keep listening to each other.
1: You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And of course, since we're based here in Washington, you can find us on the Podcast DC app. Have anything you want to say to us? You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com.
1: This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.